Good morning. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. <clears throat> um, Brandon, can you turn me up just a little bit? Welcome to those who are new or visiting. Glad that you're here with us. Uh, hopefully you all got a bulletin when you entered this morning. I just want to go over one of the announcements. You can look at the others that are there. Um, the one I want to mention is coming up on February 5th, Sunday evening at 6.30 p.m. We have our yearly church vision and mission night. Um, that's when myself as well as um, the elders will uh, kind of lay out some direction for this next year for a church fellowship. Uh, share with you guys some things that God's put on our heart, some things that we would ask you to partner with us in prayer for as we kind of step in faith into some new things for this next year. And then we'll briefly recap um, this, this last year, 2022. So January is almost over already. It's amazing. Uh, pretty soon it's going to be Christmas. Before you know it, it'll happen. Anyway, so there's your announcements. Those who are joining us uh, online, welcome. Facebook Live and YouTube, glad that you guys are tuning in with us as well. If you're ever in the area and you want to stop by and visit us, we'd love to have you. This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. Um, last week we made it through six verses of chapter 3. This week we're going to make it through the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Do you believe me? We are. I promise we are. Even if we have to be here till 1 o'clock. Just kidding. Don't get up. Don't leave. It's okay. I'm just kidding. Um, let's pray. And as we pray, we pray for the other churches in our community here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel. <clears throat> this week, we want to pray for the Connect Church. It's a Baptist church over there off of near Ohio Street. Uh, they received a new pastor just last year, middle of last year. His name is Pastor Burt Corley. So let's pray for them too this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here together. Lord, thank you for the time that we get to have as we spend time with one another and time with you. Lord, I know that you want to speak to us this morning through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, so I pray, God, that you would do that through me. Lord, I'd stay out of the way. Um, let I humble myself before you. Lord, I confess that apart from you, um, there is no good. And um, I ask and pray, God, that you do a good thing um, through me this morning because you get the glory. Lord, we want to lift up <clears throat> the Connect Church here in town a new pastor that they got several months ago, Pastor Burke Corley. Lord, as he's adjusting to our community here in Fremont, Colorado, Fremont County, Colorado, and Canyon City, and then there at the Connect Church, we pray, Lord, that him and his family would um, feel welcomed and blessed, and Lord, that they would step into that leadership role that you've called them to, and that the congregation, Lord, that um, serves alongside them, Lord, would follow um, Pastor Burt's lead as he follows you. Lord, bless them, provide for them, Lord, meet all their needs, and um, Father, as we study your word today, I pray that truth would be spoken and that we would understand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> all right, so um, how many of you, like when you read the book of Hebrews or have read the book of Hebrews, maybe some of you are reading ahead, ahead, you're like, man, I have no idea what that says. Uh, there are so many times I read God's word, it's like, I got to read it once, twice, Three times. I just want you to know you're not you're not alone in this, and and especially when it comes to like books like the book of Hebrews, especially the first ten chapters, because it's heavy with doctrine. There are great spiritual foundational truths that are being spoken into our lives, things that we build our our life on, things that we put our faith in, and there are things. And, and lots of times we know what we believe, we just don't know why we believe what we believe. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know 
um, why we believe what we believe. And the book of Hebrews is going to really help us with that, to develop that for us to understand. And the good thing about that, guys, is, is then we can go and tell others, not just what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. And so keep that in mind as we go through this next chapter, because there are some significant things. And so in the first six verses of this chapter, there was this continued discussion of um, the multiple reasons for why Jesus is greater. Remember, the whole book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus Christ, that everything in Christ is better, better than the old ways as far as what we find in the Old Testament with the Mosaic Law and the keeping of the commands and the sacrificial systems. And for that, better than any other kind of religious thing or way that we might derive or surrender ourselves to even now, that we might think that there's something better according to our ways. But with that discussion, we entered into, in the first six verses, the reasons for why Jesus is greater than Moses. And remember, this letter was originally written to the Hebrews. These were Jewish believers at the, at the time. These were second-generation Jewish believers um, after the Christ's death that were, had, 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 not, they had left Judaism and entered into Christianity to follow after Christ. And one of the, the forefathers of the fathers of the Hebrew faith was Moses. And Moses was very significant to the Hebrew people. And this second generation Hebrews were being tempted for lots of reasons. They were being pulled back to Judaism to forsake following after Christ and all that was available to them in Christ to turn back to the old ways, to the, the Mosaic ways, to the uh, and, and truthfully, guys, it's not much different than, than us. For example, I'll just share this. Um, I still have many family members who are, are Catholic and go to Catholic church. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic parochial school until I got kicked out. Don't know why that happened. <laughs> um, and ended up going to public school. But um, Catholicism, there's a lot of additions in Catholicism to what the Bible says as far as religious practice and traditions of, of, of the, their forefathers and, and, um, and, and things like that. And I'm not here to speak in judgment against Catholicism today. Uh, at the root of Catholicism is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you stay there, that's awesome. But through my experience with Catholicism, um, I, there was this sense of earning my salvation. I'm not going to say that's what the Catholic Church teaches, but that's some of the things that I was subjected to where I never felt worthy. I never felt like God's grace and mercy was enough for me, that I always had to perform. You know, and there was confession and first communion and, 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 and what's behind their, their thoughts behind communion and, and these kinds of things. And so there was this undertone, and perhaps it was just even how it was raised in, in my own family, of, of, of a performance-based relationship in regards to on my relationship with God, that God would, God was pleased with me and accept me if I did this, right? X plus Y equals this result. And as a result of that, I have this tendency, and I think it's part of our human nature, to, to slide back into that performance-based thinking. And that when I blow it, when I sin, when I rebel, um, when I do things that sinners do, it's like, man, now I got to just read like a whole chapter of the Bible and and you know, pray really hard, and, and i got to do these spiritual things, these spiritual practices in order to gain favor with God. That is not true in any way. There is a rest found in God. There's nothing greater than what can be found in Jesus Christ. And so for me, that's kind of the basis for how this applies to my life, and maybe I say that so maybe you can find something that you can relate to in your own life about 
where we try to find our rest in, in regards to having right relationship with God, our Creator, in any way apart from Jesus Christ, like in every aspect of it. And so as we look at, for the Hebrew people, this, this discussion of for why Jesus was greater than Moses, for like they're saying, don't leave Jesus, stay with Jesus, don't go back to Moses, don't go back to the old covenant, don't go back to the old ways. There were things like, like that were being brought up as like, Moses is a faithful prophet who was called by God, but Jesus, who is greater, is the apostle. Jesus wasn't called by God, he was sent by God. He was sent from heaven to earth. Emmanuel, God with us, right? The one who was sent by God. And that makes him greater. And even though Moses exercised the functions of a priest, it wasn't that Moses was unfaithful or wasn't doing the duties that he was called to do. He was. That's not why Jesus was greater, because somehow Jesus was more faithful than Moses. That wasn't the, the, the foundation for the discussion. It's just that Jesus holds a better position. He's a better individual, better person in the, in the person of Christ. And, and Moses, we know he functioned in the, the, the position of a priest. He was a mediator between God and the people in regards to the laws and the commands that had been given from God to his people there on Mount Sinai. You guys remember the story in the account? And, and even though Moses was elevated to this position, he was never elevated to the position that Jesus Christ holds, as the Bible says, as our high priest. And we kind of close chapter 2 with that discussion as we entered into chapter 3, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant of grace, not of works, not of performance, but a covenant of grace where, where, where our relationship in this covenant that we have with Christ now rests in the completed work that Jesus has done on our behalf, the completed work. Furthermore, we read how Moses' ministry was for an earthly calling. It was for this time, for this space, for this place as he was sent or he was called by God um, to go and deliver. If you remember the account, he delivered the nation of Israel out of their Egyptian bondage. They were enslaved, they were enslaved by Pharaoh. And God called Moses to go and to, to deliver his people. And we know that God did the work through Moses. God brought forth 10 different plagues, signs and wonders that ultimately resulted in uh, Pharaoh agreeing to release um, the Hebrew people. He changed his mind. We'll talk about that later. But ultimately in that call, Moses was also called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, right? The land that had been given to the nation of Israel as an inheritance, promised to their forefathers. However, when we look at that in contrast to Jesus and why Jesus is greater or better than Moses is because Jesus' ministry was for a heavenly call. It doesn't have to do with just this life. It has to do with the life to come. A heavenly call to deliver us, his people, from our sin, from death, which comes as a result of our sin. And in doing so, Jesus then leads us into an everlasting kingdom. He provides for us a heavenly citizenship with this promise of eternal life for those and only for those who will put their faith in him. And the last thing that was pointed out was the fact that Moses was a faithful servant who served in the Lord's house. But here, the lordship of Jesus Christ was brought forth where we see that Jesus was, was declared to be the builder of the house. And, and in doing so, he's also over, he's lord over the house. The house, we read in the first six verses, that we are, that he dwells in as a result of us putting our confidence, our faith in him. Intimate fellowship, dwelling together with the living son of God. And, and these wonderful spiritual truths have great significance to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ as we're called to enter into the rest 
that God provides for us through our faith in Jesus. So as we continue on, now through the rest of this chapter, picking up in verse 7, listen, with this thought that's proceeded where we're going, that Jesus is greater than Moses, or more specifically, that Christianity is better than Judaism, the completed form, if you will, of Judaism, we need to see that this truth is being established for what we now read in the remaining verses that follow here in chapter 3 and on in chapter 4, because in these next verses, hear this if you're taking notes, notes, the point is being made that through our faith in Jesus, through our belief in Jesus, His promises, the work that He's done, you know, the assurances of our salvation for this life to come, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we find true rest, a rest that could never be provided for us or for anyone through Moses, by Moses or by the law or by trying to keep the commands of God. So in light of these evidences of Jesus being greater than Moses, we should be moved to take action. You know, anyone, anytime we're confronted with truth, we should step into that truth. We should live in that truth. We shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't just leave it out there into the ethernet to, to somehow exist on its own. We're being invited to step into that truth. We should be moved as a result of these truths to take action. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is now encouraging us to do. He's encouraging us to take action with the statement in verse 7. Therefore, look, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, in other words, as God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, specifically referencing a, a, a section of Scripture. He says, today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, speaking of a specific time with a specific people, goes on to say, in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they will always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. Beware, brethren. Beware. Another call to take action. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhorting one another daily where it is called today, lest anyone of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And yes, sin does deceive us. For we who have become partakers of Christ, we hold fast to the beginning of our confession, steadfast to the end, while it is said, today, again, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. For verse 16, for who, and these questions are put forth rhetorically for us to consider this example of the nation of Israel, for who, because this is who it's talking about, for who having heard rebelled. It's not that they didn't hear God's word, they heard God's word, they understood God's word, they just rebelled. For who having heard rebelled? Many, in fact, indeed, was it not all the authorites who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with all those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who did not obey? So, verse 19, we see that they could not enter into the rest that God provided them, the place that God provided them, the life that God had promised to them because of, because of unbelief. So let's jump back to verse 7, okay, and look at this. As we begin, I want to point out that the word rest in these verses is mentioned two times, okay? And each time it's with one, it's with the same Greek word. It's, it's, it, 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 it has the same meaning, in other words. Um, 
uh, when we get to chapter 4, there's going to be this word rest used 10 additional times. It's translated from a different Greek word. It doesn't have the same meaning. And, and really what we're seeing in that is that this rest that we're being invited or called to enter into is manifold. There's many different aspects of the rest of God that we can partake of. And with the thought of entering into God's rest, this verse, these verses in seven chapter or verses 7 through 11 really are, it's a quote from Psalm 95. The author's referencing a passage of scripture from the Old Testament, Psalm 95, and does so in order to use the nation of Israel for us and their time of deliverance and the wandering through the wilderness and the moving through the Sinai desert and, and ultimately to the, 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 the borders of the promised land. They take this thought of this people, this nation of Israel, as an example to illustrate for us Spiritual truth and rest, a spiritual truth and rest that can be found in Christ, that we can receive in Christ. And at the beginning of this quote, there's this solemn warning in verse 7. It's to us now, therefore, as God speaks through the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit says, here's the message, today if you will hear his voice, today if we will hear his voice, if we will listen and receive what God is speaking to us, do not harden your heart. If we're here today, don't waste the time. God's speaking to us. He's calling us to take action in our lives. No longer continue on, maybe passively or, or, or half-heartedly or, or even rebelliously to God. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as is in the rebellion. In other words, like the Hebrew people had once done. Don't be like them. And this warning in the context of the, is in the context, think about it, of, uh, it follows this contextual thought of Jesus being greater than Moses, okay? And in doing so, it brings with this thought that if those, first of all, if those who followed Moses, okay, God was sent, God sent Moses, he called Moses to go to, to Egypt to deliver his people to step before Pharaoh, you know the account, and then to lead the people out and into the promised land. If those people whom, whom God called Moses to, think about it, if they were responsible to, to, to surrender to God's will as evident, evidenced by Moses, to, to um, trust in Moses and to persevere in following Moses, God's leader, in order to receive all that God had for them, then it reasons to conclude that we're all the more responsible to do the same with Jesus because Jesus is greater than Moses. He's a greater leader. And so as the Holy Spirit speaks to us now through the scriptures and, 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 and speaks into the heart of his people today in this time that we live and also speaks to us by the works that we see evident in the world that we live in and in our lives, the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the works of the Spirit through our lives as God speaks to us in this way we need to be listening to what's being said and to not harden our hearts, to not allow our hearts to become hard. In other words, where we ignore it, where we don't submit to it, where we go, I don't need that, I don't want that, I think something else is better for me. And I think it's important to point out that this call to not harden our hearts in rebellion to God is proceeded with this single word today. I think it's important because there's an urgency that's being presented for us to take immediate action, to not wait until tomorrow. To go, oh, that's, that's a good word. God's speaking to me, uh, and, and I heard these things, um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think I really want to do that. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. Maybe next month. I got time. You ever heard people say, you know, like, yeah, 
you know, God ain't coming back tomorrow. You hope. Or do you hope? Today, urgency. Urgency for us to make a godly change today. Now, the comparative illustration being made in these verses that quotes from Psalm 95, here in verses 7 through 11, it follows the thought of this. Listen, just like the Hebrew people were in bondage when they were in Egypt, so too are sinners, you and I, in bondage in this world because of our sin. In light of this, we know that God redeemed Israel, right, out of their Egyptian bondage. There's this whole feast called the Passover that's set up as a remembrance for the Hebrew people to remind them of what God had done. When God, through these signs and wonders, these ten signs and wonders, these miraculous events, concluded with the tenth where he sent the angel of death, right, to take the firstborn of all throughout the land. But God gave a command to the Hebrew people. It said, sacrifice the lamb. Hide yourself in your homes. Paint the blood of that lamb across the doorpost and down the doorpost of your house. And this angel of death would then pass over and you would be spared so that you may be delivered out of Egypt. And we know that, that God redeemed Israel out of their Egyptian bondage in this way through the blood of the lamb and spiritually speaking, pointing forward to what Jesus would do for us in the same manner God redeems us, sinners, through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the lamb of God, right? Furthermore, in delivering them, God also promised the Hebrew people a land of blessing. He says, I will deliver you out and I will bring you in. To a land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a place of rest. And likewise, God has promised to us a life of blessing through our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. God has delivered us out through Jesus, and he brings us into this new life, this better life than what we had before, a life in him. And in both these instances, the blessings, the deliverance, and the entering in are received by those we see who will not harden their hearts to God. The children of Israel would have entered into that place, that place of blessing that they refused to do so if they would have not hardened their hearts to God. But in addition to that, there has to be this seeking to separate ourselves from the world and follow God by faith. The two are synonymous. They go together. Here's what I mean. Think about it. He, God took the Hebrew people through the Red Sea after he brought them out of Egypt, right? They came to the, to the shores of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh at that time decided, hey, I don't want to let these people go. So he rallied his armies and all of his chariots, and he proceeded to come down upon the Hebrew people. And God parted the Red Sea. And the Hebrew people walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. When they got to the other side, Pharaoh's armies pursued them, and God brought down the waters upon Pharaoh's armies. And so in doing so, there's this really awesome picture of being separated from the world because the children of Israel were separated from Egypt by the bringing of the water and the walking of close on dry land. And then through that, God led them to the borders of the Canaan, to Canaan, to the borders of the promised land. This is an amazing thing to me because in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it says that from the time that the children of Israel left the, 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 the sea, the Red Sea, and, and traveled to the borders of this, the, the, the land of Canaan, that it says in there that's about an 11-day journey. Think about that. 11 days, and yet they ended up wandering through the wilderness for 40 years? 40 years. I mean, we're not talking about this huge expanse of land where they got lost. And around and around and around and lap and after lap after lap, they went for 40 
years in an area that would really only have taken 11 days to walk across. And we know that when they reached Kadesh Barnea, a mountainous region that was, was controlled by the Amorites, and, and it bordered the land that God was giving to his people, they rebelled in unbelief and they refused to enter into the promised land after everything that God had done. See, in this, we see also this, this thing for us. The Hebrew people started well. They were delivered out. They believed God. They put the blood of the lamb on the post. They were delivered. They were spared from the, the, the angel of death. They, they fled out of, out of Egypt, and they did so in a miraculous way. They just walked out with all the gold and all the jewels of all the people. They just gave it to them. They asked for them. God said it would happen. They're like, sure, take it. Take all of our wealth. And then they went across the dry land. Well, the, the walls of the, the, the Red Sea were there holding, holding back, and that took a measure of faith. They, they came to Mount Sinai. They had the encounter with God, all these things, in faith, in faith, in faith, in faith. But then when they got to the promised land without all of that evidence, they didn't finish so well, did they? And because of this, God, God declared a judgment against the nation of Israel, is what we're told here in this reference to Psalm 95. We know it to be true. And as a result, the Hebrew people... The result of the Hebrews' people refusal to heed God's word to enter the promised land, the place of God's rest, they were made to wander in the wilderness. And they wandered, the Bible tells us, until every person of that generation who had disobeyed had died. The only exception was for two people, Joshua and Caleb. And they were two of the spies who were sent into the land. You know, they, they follow after God, they have faith in God, they get to the borders, and they're like, we're not sure if this is what God wants for us. Emphasis mine. I mean, that's somewhat was going through their hearts. They, they said, let's check it out first and make sure that it's going to be okay. Well, God had already told them, there's a people in there who are greater than you. But do not fear. I'm your God. You're my people. I go with you, and they have nothing on you. You will defeat them. You will drive them out. I will give you this land as an inheritance. Houses that you did not build, God said, I will give to you. Fields that have been planted that you did not plant, God said, I will give to you. And yet they said, eh, I know you've done some things for us, but we're not too sure. We're going to send some guys in and check it out. And those guys came back, and they're like, oh, my gosh, there's giants in the land. And they discouraged the people. The people were discouraged, and they said, we're not going in. We're not going in. But Joshua and Caleb, they were the guys that were like, trusted God, and they opposed God's people. And they ref when the rest refused, in light of this Example, guys, a warning is given to us in verse 12, this call to action to the brethren, to us Christians who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and set free from the world. And the warning, look at it here in verse 12, is to not allow for that same evil heart of unbelief that took Israel out of the will of God and kept them from entering into the place of God's rest, to not allow for that same heart, that same attitude to be in us. Beware. And we can't, we're not being warned of something that we're not susceptible to. God knows we are susceptible to that same kind of, of attitude, that same kind of unbelieving heart. In other words, guys, we're being encouraged to be separate from this world. There's no middle ground when it comes to following Christ. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You can't be in the world And, and, and be with me, God says. So we're called to be separate from this world, to believe in, in that what God has promised us. Trust him in spite of the, the trials and difficulties of this life that we're faced with and enter into the rest that God has promised us. Now, here's where it gets really, really interesting to me. The, 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 the Greek word 
used to describe this rest that's mentioned in verse 11 and in verse 18. Probably not pronouncing it that right. I have Bible software. I don't speak Greek. But it's kat, kat apoesis. And um, it, it's defined with this, the calming of the wind. That kind of rest is the calming of the wind. My wife and I have been looking to buy a car. It's an awful process. I'm going to start, just, I'm just going to buy new shoes and walk everywhere I go. But we decided that this weekend was a good weekend to go look for cars. So we go up to Colorado Springs and it's winter storm morning up there. There's snow. You can't look at cars in the snow, walk around the parking lot. There's nobody else there. So when you finally do walk into the building, there's 32 salesmen. And they're like, you're the only person who's like, I'm like, we just stepped into the lion's den. But we're, we're trying to walk around outside and it's cold and the wind is blowing. My wife is like, I can't do this. I'm going back into the car. The wind but how about the calming of the wind? This kind of rest. And I think this is interesting because it points out to us that when we live by faith, hear this, when we live by faith in obedience to God, there's a calming. There's a calming that's brought into our hearts and minds. It's not a promise of everything in our lives being calm. Quite the opposite. There were still giants in the land that had to be fought, beat. There were battles that had to be fought in order to take possession of the life that nation of Israel was given this rest for. But, but hear this, there is a supernatural peace that is made available to us in our hearts and minds, even in the midst of trials and the, trials and the hardships that we face. But the alternative is illustrated for us by Israel's unbelief. What's the alternative? They wandered. They wandered in the wilderness and eventually perished instead of receiving the blessings and promises of God's rest. The point is, guys, many of us Christians, many of us have and do and are, we're wandering in a spiritual and emotional wilderness because of our unbelief. And instead of trusting in God and living our lives in the way that God commands us, we do ultimately, like the children of Israel, we, we do what seems right to us, maybe what the world says is right. You know, guys, this always leads to the place where there's no peace. As a matter of fact, even a little further to the place, always at the end of it is death and destruction, confusion, fear, anxiety, worry, hopelessness. And so obedience, here's an equation for you. I'm not very good at math, but, 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 but this, is, this is kind of like an algebraic equation. Um, X plus Y equals whatever, right? So obedience by faith equals rest. Obedience by faith equals rest. However, an unbelieving heart, which brings disobedience, equals no rest. Before we move on, I want to point out that there is a root cause of an, of an evil heart. We have to take this diagnosis all the way to its end where so we might receive the right prescription. And the root cause of an evil heart Unbelieving heart, according to verses 7 and 15, is ultimately our refusal to listen to what? To God's voice. That's the root cause. Our unwillingness to, to hear and receive what God is saying to us. And fortunately for us today, we have the Bible. And every time we read the Word of God, we can rest assured that God is speaking to us. Furthermore, we have the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible says, now living inside of us as well this new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. Something greater, something completed. And the Holy Spirit is faithful, when you think about this, is faithful to convict us, the Holy Spirit, He is faithful to convict us when we disobey. When unbelief enters in. 
and ultimately faithful to lead us back to the right path if we choose to listen. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes, we read God's Word, we know what God's Word says for our lives, about God's will, about who God is, and, and, and we, we go about it, and yet we get off track, and the Holy Spirit goes, hey, that's not right. Don't you remember? You're like, oh, yeah. And we have a choice at that point, right? To go, I'm going to get back on track, the track that the Holy Spirit has revealed to me, or not, to heed, to listen to what God has said. And the question we should ask ourselves is this, very simply, guys, are you reading God's Word on a regular basis? If not, you're at a huge disadvantage. There's not even the opportunity for the rest of these things to take place. There's not even really an opportunity to live in faith. can't do it apart from God's Word by receiving what, what God's Word is telling us to do. How do we know what to do if we aren't told what to do? And are we actively listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us then by repenting when we're convicted of our sin or disobedience? Or are we, as verse 13 here is pointing out, hardened and deceived as we in our unbelief give way to our sin? Our way of doing things. The world's way of doing things. In light of these questions, we should keep in mind, hear this, Unbelief is not the inability to understand. It's the unwillingness to trust. Unbelief is not the inability to understand. It's the unbelief to trust. It's an issue of the will, not an issue of intelligence. Furthermore, as unbelief isn't weakness of faith. We all exhibit and demonstrate times where we're weak in faith, where we have doubts. That's not it. It's not the same thing. Rather, unbelief sets itself in opposition to faith, where God has said this and we go, no. No. And verse 19 clearly declares that it is unbelief that prevented the nation of Israel from entering into God's rest. It's an unbelief that prevents us from entering into God's rest. Now, this promise of God's rest that comes as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, it's manifold. There's many aspects of it. And in addition to the rest that we have in the midst of trials and difficulties, where there is a supernatural peace that fills our hearts and our minds, no matter what's going on in the outside, the Bible also tells us that there's also a rest that's found in salvation, the rest of salvation and the future eternal rest, a heavenly rest that is waiting for us when this life is over. And these are the kinds of rests that are now being spoken of to us in chapter 4. Look, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, so we can receive one promise of rest, and yet there's another promise of rest to come, right? Let us fear, again, lest any of you, any of us, seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel, the good news message of Jesus Christ, right, was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard, it did not profit them. Why? Because it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard it. Unbelief. For we who have believed do not enter that rest as he has said. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And we're going to get a, an example of this in verse 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, speaking of the creation account in the book of Genesis and what happened on the seventh day where it says, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day 
saying in David, meaning at a, a later time, same message today after such a long time as it had been. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, thinking and in, in referencing the time when the children of Israel after 40 years did enter in, if Joshua had given them rest, speaking of this additional aspect of rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. God wouldn't say, hey, there's another day, another opportunity of rest if there wasn't available. And so it says, therefore, verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for God's people. For he who has entered his rest has himself, here's the kind of rest, he has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. As God did from his. So, Hopefully I can make some sense of this for you guys. So with the same illustrative comparison moving forward, right, being made between Israel and those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, the blessing of rest that we receive by our faith in Jesus is now shifted from the peace of mind and the peace that we can have inside, even in the midst of the trials that we find, it's shifted from that rest to a rest that's now found in salvation, and this begins in verse 1. Follow, follow the, the thought process with me. Look at the scripture. With this begins, and this begins in verse 1, with the mention of a promise of rest that had been given to the nation of Israel, who also heard the gospel message, but they, according to verse 6, did not enter into that rest. Why? Because of disobedience. Same root cause, which again is the result of a heart of unbelief. An unbelieving heart equals disobedience, right? Now, we can know that this is a different promise of rest, as I already kind of alluded to, if you look at verse 8, where verse 8 speaks about a rest that they did not enter to, even though they had come to this place where Joshua had led them into a promised land, a different kind of rest. And this different kind of rest, according to verse 9, that remains for God's people, is likened in verse 4. What is it like? It's like the rest that God entered into on the seventh day of creation from all of his work. So we need to understand that. We need to look at that. And the point is, is this rest that is now being referenced and is available to us is a rest that comes as a result of something being completed. It's not the rest that comes after exhaustion. As a matter of fact, if you've ever done manual labor, which most moms do at home every day, but for me, outside of the workplace, I mean, I did many jobs where I did construction. And you know what? Just because I went home at the end of the day doesn't mean the work was done. The house wasn't built. The hole wasn't dug. As a matter of fact, it was waiting for me to finish in the next day, right? You're just exhausted. It's the end of the day. You want to go home and get rest and eat. That's not the kind of rest. The kind of rest that we're talking about is, is when the job is done, when the house is built, when the hole is dug, when the laundry's done, which is never done, right? Never, never rest in laundry. But you get it. You see, God, in other words, God wasn't tired after he created the world in six days. That wasn't why God said, oh, I'm so exhausted speaking this world into creation in these six days. It just really took it out of me. That wasn't it. The rest that God entered into on the seventh day was a rest of completion. The work was done. Do you see that? Meaning God rested or ceased from his work because all the work had been done. And as verse 1 then now says, let us take fear, let us be fearful, let us be aware, lest we come short of entering into this rest, the rest of salvation that is found in the finished work of Jesus that we, according to verse 3, enter into by faith. Into 
through belief. The rest that comes according to verse 10 as a result of ceasing from our work like God ceased from His on the seventh day. And this is the kind of rest that Jesus was speaking about in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, when He said this. He said, Come to Me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, listen, the point is this. It's clear in that rest for our souls is only found in the completed work that Jesus performed on the cross with the sacrifice of his life. So ultimately what that means, we need to stop trying to do it on our own. We, not, we, need to, we need to understand that there's really no hope for us apart from Jesus Christ. There's no amount of work that we can do where we go, if I just do a little bit more good things, maybe when I get to heaven and stand before God, when this life is over, I'm going to be okay. There's no rest in that. We're never going to accumulate enough good works in this life that we lived, even if we lived a thousand years, to be able to be found worthy to stand before God on our own. But there's hope for us because Jesus completed the work on the cross with the sacrifice of his life for us. And he says, stop working, enter into my rest, the work that I've done. And this is powerfully evident when we consider the words of Jesus that he cried out while hanging on the cross just before he took his last and final breath and said this, it is finished. Why would he say that at a time like that? And of everything that he could have said, why would he said, as he gave up his, his spirit and, and, and breathed his last breath, he said, it's finished. He said it because it means that the work is done. What he did on the cross was a completed work. It's been accomplished, and now there is a rest for us who respond in faith to the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 2 verses 8 through 9 says it like this. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. Nothing you do or nothing you did or nothing you can do. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of any work. Lest we would boast. If it was, we would boast. We would get to heaven after that thousand year long life. And we go, yes, enough. I'm here. And God would would, would stand before God and we'd go, look what I did to get here. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how great I am. I deserve all of this. And yet that's not the case. And in verse 11, we continue on and it says of chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore, so here's what we do, here's the work that we do, so to speak, figuratively speaking in a sense, be diligent to enter that rest. That seems kind of, um, yeah, it's... it's um, Anyway, it says, enter into that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God, here's what it is. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Understand that. Understand and underline this, these two words, living and powerful. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints of tomorrow, and it is the sir and thoughts and tents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from God's sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wow. 
Now, the Greek word used here in verse 11 for diligence is the word spudadzo. And it means this, to make every effort. Literally, it means to make every effort possible. And we're told to make every effort to enter into the rest of salvation that God has provided for us so that we do not fall like the children of Israel did in the wilderness. Now, just so we don't think this is some other work that we do in regards to entering in, we must consider what the apostles, the disciples asked Jesus when they said, what, was, what must we do to do the works of God, to be pleasing to God, to, to receive what God has for us? What must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. This is what we must be diligent to do, lest we fall short. And Jesus said, believe in him whom he sent. Again, the issue of belief and faith. We enter into the work of belief, believing and trusting and relying upon and clinging to. And this is no different than what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, where he said this. He said, brothers, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. God's called us. He's elected us. He's chosen us. Make sure that that's that you're diligent to make that sure, that you know for sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble, for an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the way to take heed to this warning so that we do not stumble or fall is to pay attention, as the Scripture goes on to tell us, to pay attention to the Word of God. You want to do the work of God and believing in Jesus Christ, pay attention to the word of God. And when it came to the Hebrew people, they did not do this. In fact, they did not believe God's word and they forsook what God had said. And all who rebelled, we know, fell, all who rebelled against God fell in the wilderness. Now, by comparing the word of God in verse 12, look at this, to a sword that pierces and, and divides, we're being pointed to the fact that the word of God in our lives has the power to perfectly and precisely cut deep into our hearts, to the innermost being of who we are. To cut to the thought and the motions where, where our thoughts and emotions are birthed in order to expose what is inside of us and ultimately convict us. Furthermore, we know from Romans chapter 10, as we connect these dots, verse 17, think about this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so when we hear God's word in this way, in the way of receiving what it tells us to do, because there's many ways we hear, we, oh yeah, I heard you. You know, you just think about your own kids. Did you hear what I said? <laughs> yes. Then we go, why aren't you doing it? Right? So when we hear God's word in this way, in the receiving of what it is telling us, and doing then what have been, that we've been told, hear this, then faith is made evident and even produced in our lives. So the Word of God exposes the thoughts and the intents of our heart, the most inner parts of us, in order to show us, to show us what we on our own cannot see or understand about ourselves. The Bible says that our heart is deceitful and wicked, and we cannot know it, that only God can. And God reveals it to us in a truthful and loving way. And our response to what God reveals to us needs to be a response of faith and where we trust God. Literally what we do is we come into agreement with what God says about us. God says, this is you, this is your problem, and this is what you need to do. And we go, yeah, you're right. You see, the issue of salvation is always an issue of, a, of coming into agreement with what God says. Number one, God's saying to us, you're not God, I am. 
and you need me. Because, see, we think we're God in our own right when we go about this life doing the things that we want to do in the way that we want to do them, saying, I have no need for God, a creator, because I will be my own God. We create a God in our own image, and we put ourselves upon the throne, and we worship self. We do. But we come in an agreement with God, who tr- and we trust in him who loves us and who sent Jesus to die for us, and ultimately... We submit our obedience to his will in doing so and coming into agreement with him. And the fact of the matter is, is that, the, 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 that God's word, which is living, remember I told you to note that as it says here, enables us to see God. Think about this. We don't, we don't have, this is an experiential encounter with God's word that we're talking about. And that's why it says it's alive. It is alive. It's declared it's alive. We don't have an experiential encounter with dead things. And there's no interaction. It's, de- it's dead. You, you find a dead animal on the road, you go to pet it, you're not gonna, the cat's not going to purr. It's dead. It's not going to respond. So think about that. God's word, which is living, enables us. It's, it's active. It's, it's, it's alive. It, in, the, in doing so, it enables us to see God for who he is. It enables us to see how God sees us, where God says, I see you in this way. And as painful as it might be, it allows us to then see ourselves for who we really are, and therefore then our need is exposed. But the same experiential encounter with God, here's the very hopeful part. Not only is it alive, it's powerful. There's there's a a power in the Word of God that we do not possess on our own, that we need. It is a power that enables us to then be honest with God. It bursts forth humility. It gives us this power, this ability to trust his will, this power, this ability to obey him through faith. God reveals it, and he never says, go fix it. Go take care of this. God says, come to me, I'll fix it. I'll take care of this. My word is alive, and it's powerful. It is, it is the prescription and the antidote. It prescribes, and it gives the antidote. It enables us to be honest with God, to trust his will, to obey him through faith, and ultimately to enter into his rest. And think about that. Through this, there is a change that takes place in us. It's a supernatural transformation. It's not a transformation that we birth on our own. It's a transformation that takes place as a result of spending time in God's word. This is why I teach God's word and not my word. I've been in churches where you get a lot of opinion and a lot of of, of thoughts of the guy who's preaching. And I'm like, stop it. I don't want to hear what you have to say because your words don't change me. God's word is the only word that has the power to transform us, to change us from the inside out through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is described to us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we are admonished to not be conformed to this world, to be separate from this world, right? To be transformed through renewing of our mind as we set our mind upon the things of God, what's in his word. And in light of this, we see that the rest that God, that, that God's be, that's being offered to us is this opportunity to enter into the state or place. Hear this. It's this simple where we let go of our own lives, and we let God rule. We give him the rightful place of creator and take the right position of creation. He's the creator. We're the created thing. He's God. I'm not. I let you rule over my life. I let you manage my life. And in this place, guys, it's it's free from chaos. It's free from disorder. It's free from pain. It's free from hopelessness. It's free from anxiety. It's free from confusion, all that's brought forth by our sin and rebellion. I remember 
before I gave my life to Christ, that's the place I lived. Controlling my own life, doing my own thing. I'm my own God, my own way. And ultimately, I remember time and time and time and time again of coming home and being alone in the room by myself and being utterly and thoroughly disgusted with the person that I become and hopeless forever being any different. Where I'd wreck relationship after relationship after relationship and wrecked my life over and over and over again. And maybe your story is not the same as mine, but ultimately at the core of it, that's the core of it. Where we go, I know a better way. And so I'm going to continue to this work of controlling my own life, managing my own life. So anyone who will rest from their own work of bringing their own life under control can enter into God's rest. And once again, all this is possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the rest of salvation that we have in him. And so in verse 14, seeing then another call to action, do you guys see this? That we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. You see, this is also something that the Hebrew people really related to because they were familiar with the, the office and the position of high priest. We, we don't so much relate on that level because we don't, we don't operate under these Jewish um, ways that they did back then. So it's hard for us maybe to a little bit connect to this. But the fact that Jesus is called great here is very significant because there always ever only was one high priest. He was never greater than anyone. Even if he was a good high priest or a bad high priest, he could never take this title of great in regards to his person or his position or stature. But yet Jesus is given this. And Jesus isn't even of the tribe of Levite or, or a descendant of Aaron, which was a requirement for these things. But what we're being told is that Jesus is this great high priest. He's better for us and better to us. Why? Because number one, what's his qualifiers for being great? It says here, he's the son of God. And because we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, see the great high priest, the high priest, these earthly high priests, they would enter into the tabernacle on the day of atonement once a year. There's a single greatest, most important job or duty that the high priest had. And he'd go through the veil of separation into the holy of the holies where the ark of the covenant was at and the mercy seat. And he would take the blood of a sacrificed animal for the, the atonement of the sins of the nation. He would offer it up. But only the high priest was ever allowed to go in there. No other people. And he, this high priest would go through these, this earthly barrier or boundary that was designed to keep people out, right? It's all a picture of what was to come, but through Christ, we have something better as a great high priest. Why is he great? Because he's not just gone through the veil of separation into the tabernacle before the presence of God. He has what? He's passed through the heavens, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And no high priest before Christ could ever claim that. They may be able to identify with us in their own sinfulness, but not in being holy and still being tempted. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to close with this. Listen, guys. Jesus is superior in every way because of what he offers to us through his position of high priest. Just one of the many things, our great high priest. You see, and when we realize the superiority of Jesus Christ as our, our great high priest, we should come to two conclusions, and this is what I'm going to leave you with. The first conclusion that we need to come to is this, is the fact that we 
as the end of verse 14 tells us, we can hold fast to our confession, our confession of faith in Jesus. We don't need to go anywhere else that we somehow deem as maybe right or better or what anyone else in the world tells us because we understand this. Hear this. There's no better way. There's no better way except through the work that Jesus has done. There's no greater thing to turn to other than Jesus Christ. What else or who else can give us access to God? Certainly, we're not going to take care of that problem that we have on our own. God's not like my fourth grade math teacher where, where you know, she takes the 51% of the people that pass the test and say, okay, you guys did good. The others, not so much. And so we're going to grade on the curve here. That's not how God works. The Bible says that, that the wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. And all of us have sinned. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's not 10 sins. It's not 100 sins. It's not 1,000 sins. It's not... 1,000 good things versus 999 bad things. It's sin, any sin. And we're deserving of death. And the only hope is Jesus. There's no better way, there's no greater thing to turn to. What else or who else can give us access to God? And what else or who else is going to make sure that when we come to God for help, that we're not going to get what we deserve and get something that we don't deserve at all, the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God. See, through Jesus Christ as great high priest, he's a minister of mercy and grace. In other words, he says, come up here and get mercy. Come up here and get grace. The second conclusion is pointed out in verse 15 where we're told that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands because he, as he came to this earth, he was tempted as we are tempted. He went through trials like we go through trials. He was he was tempted, and it means this, that our great high priest is great because even though he is the perfect son of God who has passed through the heavens, he is intimately close to us because he knows firsthand about the problems and temptations that we also have, that we also face. And so as verse 16 says, guys, let's take action. Let us approach the throne of grace enter into the presence of God through our faith in Jesus Christ with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in our time of need. And Lord, we are all in need of help. No matter where we are at in regards to the, this um, relationship that we have with you, maybe there are people here this morning, Lord, who have not yet come into agreement with you and they want to start a relationship with you. If that's you this morning, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I would ask you to do so today, to put your confidence in him and who he is and the work that he's done and cease from this work of trying to be right on your own, trying to have some kind of assurance and hope for something that you can never lay hold of on your own, but to take hold of the hand of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on the cross for you. Just confess that you're a sinner, that you're in need and that you want what he has for you and he'll accept you. He says he's faithful to forgive those who are all, whoever comes to him. And today's the day, today. If you are a sinner here who has been saved by grace and for somehow you've entered back into the, the ways of the world and there's things that have crept in that God's been speaking to you about, we all do, we all have, I would encourage you to be separate again, to trust that God's way is better. Stop trying to control and manage your own life. Enter into faith and belief and trust, even though you don't see it with your own eyes, that God has 
good for you. He loves you. His way is best, and in him is found rest, and in him alone. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?